Well, good morning. I hate to pull the trigger, but if we waited until everyone was done talking, we might never start. <clears throat> so, uh, with that, uh, we will begin this morning. Uh, I will start with prayer requests. Very good. Then I will open us uh, with Psalm 25, and we will go into prayer and then be off in Deuteronomy this morning. Psalm 25, verses 6 and 7. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come to you especially this morning, having taken communion, reminding ourselves of your steadfast love and your goodness, that you are the God who blots out sin and transgression and does not remember us according to the sins of our youth. And for that, we are thankful. We return to you praise and glory and honor. And we come here seeking to know you as a result of spending time in the text that you have preserved over thousands of years. We thank you for this good word that is able to correct and guide us even today. We pray that you would open our eyes to what Moses has written in Deuteronomy, that we might behold you, that we might pursue you with greater glory and worship you with greater fervency, and pursue the mission that you have called us for with greater energy. We pray for your blessing over our time. Bless this conversation and the meditation of our hearts, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 25 is what we just read. We're going to go to Deuteronomy 1 this morning. Uh, Deuteronomy 1, we will pick it up in verse 19. And we are going to make a run for the end of the chapter. We'll see how uh, we, if we actually make it there or not. But we're going to give it an honest effort. Very brief review. Up to this point in Deuteronomy, Moses has been recounting for Israel the time that they have uh, spent at Sinai. Last week we looked at that. And before they leave Sinai, there are a few administrative structures they need to put in place. Moses appoints elders uh, because he cannot handle by himself the weightiness of this God-multiplied and complaining people. So uh, because he cannot handle that weight... He selects elders who are approved by the congregation to function as leaders and heads over them. And then he charges the judges to administer justice righteously because the judgment is God's. And so everything from the conquest of Canaan to trivial matters that are decided by these judges, uh, that all comes from and is related to God. It is God-oriented and God-given. Now, you would think that there would therefore be no more need for continuing on in strife. So Moses begins, uh, before we left Sinai, we had to deal with the issue of your complaints with one another. So the way we handled that was by appointing judges. But what we'll see today is their complaints are not directed only at one another. They're also directed at God. And for that, there is uh, a very limited way of mediating the complaint and the strife between the people and God himself. 
Now that, uh, that little aside of the appointing of the judges is kind of a parenthetical statement, something Moses wants to address with the people before he moves on with continuing the narrative of their journey. So he says uh, early on that we were commanded to leave Sinai, and then he picks up their departure from Sinai in verse 19, which is where we pick it up today. So Deuteronomy chapter 1, we'll start in verse 19, and the way we'll do it this morning, instead of reading a section and then coming back, Uh, I will just read a few verses, and we'll kind of make comments as we go this morning. So, Deuteronomy 1, verse 19. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And so they take here the treacherous trip from Sinai, which Moses calls Horeb. Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai are the same thing, just two different names for the same place. And they go to Kadesh Barnea in the southern section of Canaan. And Moses references it here as the hill country of the Amorites. Now he does this to show that what Israel did is exactly what they were commanded up in verse 7, when the Lord said, Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites. Moses is simply saying, We did, just as the Lord told us to do, and he reminds them that they arrived safely. Now this, in verse 20, is repeated again. And I said to you, You have come to the hill country of the Amorites. So Moses here is reminding the people of a speech that he gave them at that time. When they came to the hill country of the Amorites... He says, here we are in the hill country of the Amorites. That is the third time in this chapter that Moses has referred to this location as the hill country of the Amorites. And it's worth asking why. Why does he keep repeating himself? Why does he say the hill country of the Amorites, the hill country of the Amorites, the hill country of the Amorites uh, for now the third time? As we saw last week, one reason for that is the Lord is targeting specific groups of people to remove off of the land. They are all related uh, by descent from Canaan. So the Edomites stay, the Moabites stay, the Ammonites stay, but if they are descended from Canaan, which the Amorites are, then off with them. They, They are to be dispossessed. They are to be removed from off the land, and Israel is to have their territory. So there is this issue of who is being targeted. It's the Amorites. And you've now entered their territory, which leads to the second thing, which is they are in enemy territory. This is not neutral ground. It's not as though there is some open place that is entirely unoccupied. Nobody is there. And so there's space for the Israelites to kind of spread out and have some elbow room. That's not how it is. They're in the hill country of the Amorites, which is enemy territory, the land that they themselves are supposed to dispossess and eventually inherit. They are in the promised land. They are on the border of the promised land, but in the promised land. This falls within the territory that has been allotted to them ever since the promises were given to Abraham. Remember the promises from the Egypt River all the way to the Euphrates River. They are within that stretch of land here, in the hill country of the Amorites. And so they are in need, even at the moment, of the Lord's protection and the Lord's guidance to avoid 
dangers and not just from the land but also from the people who are there. And so it's worth pointing out that they are in the promised land, in the land that the Lord says, I am giving to you. They are not merely on the cusp of the land. They are already geographically within it. And what they learn, so Moses is speaking to the people on the plains of Moab 38 years after this. So this incident at Kadesh occurred 38 years before Moses' speech to them, reminding them of these things. And what they're supposed to know already is the lesson that they learned 38 years ago, which is when we disobey the Lord, the land is not ours. The Lord removes us off his land, which is the land of Canaan. Interestingly, that they learn that lesson before they even possess the land. We don't even own the land, and the Lord has kicked us off the land where the Amorites are. How much more should we know that after we possess the land, the Lord's program doesn't change? And Moses continually reminds Israel, if you don't obey the Lord, this land will not be yours. And they had that experience, they should learn that lesson by experience, before they ever enter into one engagement of battle. The issue isn't who do we have to beat or who will defeat us in order that we might remain in this land. The question is who do we have to obey to remain in this land, which is what we discussed a little bit last week as well. So Moses is reminding Israel of what they should have already known. And he continues on in verse 21 of reminding the, Amorite, the, the Israelites of what they already know. Uh, he mentioned this up in verse 7. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 7 real quick. I uh, Just to remind us of what Moses had already reminded Israel of before they left Sinai. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and go to all their neighbors in the Arabah in the hill country and in the lowlands and in the Negev and by the seacoast in the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now this is what we're after in verse 8. See, I have set the land before you. Which is, I am giving you the land. The, the word behind I have set the land before you in Hebrew, the word there is Give. The reason that is significant is because we see it explicitly in uh, one of the verses in between, but then the same thing happens in verse 21. It's the same phrase. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. The Lord has given the land before you. The land is right before you. This is what he has already given to you. So Moses draws their attention. Uh, Look up. Take notice. See. That's what that word means. Take notice of this. The Lord has given the land to you. He says it in verse 8 and in verse 20 and then in verse 21 as well. The land that our Lord is giving us in verse 20 and in verse 21 it is the land the Lord is giving before them. The reason I make a deal of this is this is the third time that Moses has reminded the Israelites of the promise that the Lord is the one who gives the land to the Israelites. They do not earn it. They work for it, but they do not earn it. It is given to them by a grant. And they are supposed to take special notice of the fact that the Lord is the one who gives it to them. They own it because the Lord gives it. Not only that, but the mere repetition of that promise is designed to increase Israel's confidence that that really is the case. 
the repetition of the promise is designed to increase their confidence. Now think of this in terms of Hebrews 10, verses 23 and 25. The reward, the promise of the reward is supposed to overwhelm the lures and dangers of the present. Because Israel is facing present dangers among the Amorites. And the promise is supposed to draw their attention away from the dangers and the allurements that they currently find themselves in. So Hebrews 10, verses 23 to 25. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So that little phrase there, stir up one another to love and good works. Moses does that through his preaching, teaching, pretty close to synonymous in Deuteronomy, and through the repetition of the promise, which means it is important for the Israelites to hear that promise again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Moses continually throws the promise to the people so that their confidence that it's actually true might increase. And he does that here in chapter 1 as well. So they are supposed to see, in verse 21, see the Lord your God has set the land before you. And then he goes up with a twofold command. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. So here, not only are they supposed to go up and take possession, uh, where Moses drives to the heart of what they are supposed to do, do not fear and be dismayed, is the rest of the verse there. Moses cuts to the heart, as if he can read the minds of the people. Uh, you are going to fear, there are dreadful enemies in the land of Canaan. Do not fear them. Do not be dismayed. Go on and possess the land. This command is echoed throughout Deuteronomy. It comes in Deuteronomy 31, verses 7 to 8. But what is interesting is that the rest of the time these commands occur outside of Deuteronomy, the early chapters of Deuteronomy, is directed to Joshua. So in Deuteronomy 31, verses 7 and 8, we see the same twofold command given not to the people of Israel, but to Joshua himself. And of course, it is reiterated several times in the book of Joshua, but just here in Deuteronomy 31, verses 7 and 8. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So when, when the promise is given to Joshua, there's this special emphasis that Moses gives Joshua. He will be with you. That does not mean that God is going to be with Joshua in a way that he wasn't with the people of Israel when they arrived at Kadesh Barnea 38 years earlier. 
the presence of the Lord is never really explicitly addressed in Deuteronomy 1 per se. But the presence of the Lord is the whole game. It's, it's everything that lies behind Deuteronomy 1. It is implicit in everything that Moses says. God doesn't send them away from Horeb and remain there. The Lord travels with Israel in the tabernacle, which actually goes before them. We'll see in just a little bit. God demonstrates his nearness to them by placing his spirit upon 70 of the elders along the way, um, later on anyway. And then the third thing is in providing and protecting for them as they traveled through that great and terrifying wilderness that he had just mentioned in verse 19. So the Lord is clearly with his people before God leads them into Canaan, into battle. He is present with them and he has given or he is giving to them the land. They ought to enter enter it confidently. But they seem to pause. Verse 22. Then all of you came near to me after we arrived at Kadesh Barnea and said, Let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. Now notice all, Moses accuses the people at the beginning of the verse, then all of you came to me. It's as if the whole group of the Israelites came to Moses and one fell shot and said, we want men to go and investigate the land for us and bring us back the information of what they learn. They want to know two things in particular. The best route they ought to go. Let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up. So what is the best route we ought to take? And the cities to which we are to come. How are we going to best engage these cities in battle? So what they're looking for here are two aspects of military information. What's the best route? How do we fight the cities? We want to send men ahead so we can learn this military intelligence. But things seem to backfire. Verse 23 Moses says, The thing seemed good to me, and I took twelve men from you, one man from each tribe. And they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshkol, which simply means the valley of the grapes. It's near Hebron, not very far from where they were in Kadesh Barnea. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out from the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Which is a way of asking, how can we ascend? How, how can we go into Canaan? There's no good way for us to go. Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven, and besides, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. Just a few things to notice. Moses' recollection of the events differs quite a bit from the way they are narrated back in Numbers when they actually seem to unfold. So if we go back to Numbers 13, we'll see uh, a difference. Verse 
In Deuteronomy, Moses said, You all came to me and said, Let's send men ahead of us. But Numbers 13, verse 1, this is the way Moses narrates the event. The event. And by the way, this is where it's really helpful. I mean, tradition has always held Moses wrote the first five books, right? Let's assume, as I think we ought to, Moses wrote Numbers, and let's assume that he wrote Deuteronomy. It's not like he couldn't look back and see what he wrote, right? Numbers 13, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, everyone, a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, which is roughly where Kadesh is, according to the command of the Lord. And they they go up and they spy out the land. So Numbers 13 says, the Lord told me to send men. In Deuteronomy 1, he says, you told me to send men ahead. Moses is not changing the story to make the people at fault in Deuteronomy and let God off the hook somehow with the people's rebellion in Deuteronomy. He's not changing the story to make the Israelites at fault per se. What he is highlighting is that their request to send the spies into Canaan was as much an act of military prudence as it was an act of faithlessness. Those two things go hand in hand. Nowhere in the text, ever, are they condemned for sending the spies into Canaan. In fact, Numbers points out, no, this was divinely sanctioned. It was okay. It was good. It was right. Moses says, it seemed good to me, and I don't think we should find fault for Moses with that either. The Lord commanded me, send men ahead. Numbers 13. So what are we to do with this then? Well, I think what we are to do is read between the lines and roughly piece together how it likely happened, which is the men probably approached God and said, we would like to send men ahead into Canaan. Moses assents to that, thinks it's wise himself. Remember, Joshua does the same thing in the beginning of Joshua. He sends men to spy out the land. Moses, though, not wanting to simply do it on his own, uh, gets word from the Lord. Shall we do this or shall we not? The Lord commands, yes, send men into Canaan, which we could take as much as a granting of permission as much as a direct uh, command. So a lot of times when we read, the Lord commanded me, we assume that the Lord takes initiative in doing that. We don't always need to make that assumption. In fact, we might even say, when the Lord commands, it could be as much as uh, granting permission and saying, yes, you ought to do this, and more, here's how you ought to do it. Moses then selects the men, the spies go, and they return with the word. Now, if that seems far-fetched, that when the Israelites want to send the men in, it is, one, an act of prudence, it is wise, and it is also an act of faithlessness, those two things don't need to be separated. Jeremiah is well known for his little quote, the heart is deceptive above all things, desperately wicked. Have you ever done something that you thought was very wise? And in retrospect, you realize, 
not sure that was the, the right thing to do. Not because it wasn't wise, but because it was faithless. It wasn't done in faith. We often might use wisdom as a cover for faithlessness. And what Moses is doing here in Deuteronomy 1 is pointing that very thing out to the Israelites. Now, you, you, want, you say and you thought, and I thought this was being done as simply an act of wisdom. Well, reflecting on that event for 38 years, I've come to realize, no, that act was faithlessness. It began even there. And so he continues, that, that's why he emphasizes that aspect of the story. You approached me to send men in. What he's doing, just as he did earlier on, dealing with their complaints with one another, he's drawing, continuing the theme of Israel's tendency towards faithlessness. Now what happens, the other thing that happens in Deuteronomy is Moses only mentions the positive aspect of the spies' report. So back to Deuteronomy 1. We're going to go back to Numbers 13, so if you have a finger in it, uh, keep it there. But in Deuteronomy 1, verse 25, And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Yet you would not go up. In, Deuter- in uh, Numbers 13, verses 25 to 29, we get the fuller report of what the spies actually said. Numbers 13, starting in verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, We came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. So that's the good report. However, verse 28, The people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. And so they pile, not only do they say, the people are tall, they're big, they're scary, the cities are well fortified, we have no way of uh, bringing down those cities. They add upon that, there are all these enemies all around, anywhere we go, anywhere we set foot in Canaan, there's going to be trouble because everyone knows we're there to invade, they're going to try and kill us. And so even if we did happen to take down a city, we'd have to watch our backs the whole time. So they pile on the challenges of the conquest. Moses skips all of it. Doesn't say a single word in Deuteronomy about the negative part of the spies' report. Only mentions the good aspect. So Deuteronomy 1.25, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. So he highlights the fruit of the land and the positive aspect and then moves on simply to their refusal. So the way Deuteronomy reads simply draws out this point. You had no good reason for rejecting it. Yes, there were all of those reasons, but you had no good reason for rejecting it. Your your rejection seemed reasonable, perhaps, as you looked at things, but you didn't even factor in the Lord. There was no good reason for rejecting the land. It was a good land. The Lord was with us, and you said no. So he simply ends it with, you had 
no good reason, which is why verse 26 feels entirely out of the blue. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. That's a pretty sharp accusation in light of the land is good, but you wouldn't go. And he lets that sit with the people. Now Israel does not give um, excuse per se. In verse 27, they make an accusation. So Moses is reminding the Israelites, and you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us up out of the land to give us into the hand of the Amorites. So they make an accusation. They blame shift. Where are we going up? Verse 28. Our brothers made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we've seen the sons of Anakim there. So in the end of verse 28, they support their accusation against the Lord that we know the Lord hates us and has brought us up in order to destroy us because there are these giants in the land there. That's the proof that we have that the Lord is out to get us. So they make an accusation. The Lord hates us and has brought us up to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. They blame shift. Our brothers made our hearts melt and they support their claims with some proof. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Genesis 3, Adam, the Lord approaches Adam. No, no, it was the woman that you gave me. So he blames the Lord, makes an accusation. You gave me this woman. She gave me the fruit, and there's the blame shift. So the accusation... And the blame shift to work exactly the same in Deuteronomy 1 as they did in Genesis 3. And again, God's people, in God's place, with work to do, end up turning things on the Lord, saying, no, this is not our fault. This is the fault of the Lord, and this is the fault of our brothers. And instead of giving us the land, as the Lord says he has, he's giving us into the hand of the Amorites. That's why I emphasized that word give earlier on, because it shows up again here. This is now the fourth time, but it's found in the mouth of the people. It is not the Lord giving the land, which has been emphasized three times. It is the Lord giving us into the hand of the enemy. So they turn things against the Lord, and this here is where the rebellion really comes through very plainly. Moses says, you rebelled against the Lord. Well, what does it mean to rebel against the Lord? Well, it means to say his intentions are not what his intentions are, and he has not done for us what he says he's done for us, which means he's not going to do for us what he's going to do for us. So it is a complete refutal of everything that the Lord has up to this point said and done on their behalf, and they completely turn it on its head in order to avoid going into Canaan. We'll take a little pause there, thoughts or questions up through that.
Yeah. Yep. Good. So what's their alternative? In reference to when? Oh, okay. So when they're in Kadesh and they feel like they're being sent into an ambush, what's their alternative? We'll come to that right here in the next few verses. It's a great question. Any Anything else before we do that? All right. Starting in verse 29. Then I said to you, Do not be in dread or afraid of them. Moses responds like a parent with an injunction. He reminds them of what he has already told them. Do not be in dread or afraid. And then tells them why that is reasonable, even in light of what they fear. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. So he says nothing about the problems that they face in Canaan. Except do not fear them. That's it. That's all he says about what is in Canaan. Everything else he says is to direct their focus entirely on the God who has overcome all of their obstacles up to this point. It's as if he, he has the two jars, one jar with trouble and one jar with God, puts the jar with trouble away. He, he hides it, he destroys it, he buries it in the sand. All that's left is the Lord. That's all he focuses on. In this section, the Lord your God goes before you. He himself will fight for you, just as he did in Egypt and just as he did in the wilderness. First, he contrasts the men who they wanted to go before them into Canaan to spy it out with the Lord who actually does go before them. Yet you wanted them to go before you, and in Deuteronomy, he only mentions them going as far as Hebron, which is maybe 30, 40, 50 miles from this point. They didn't make it very far in Deuteronomy. Right? They, they made it a little ways and they came back. It's, it's as if they barely stepped foot uh, into where they would be going to fight and then they came right back. So Moses, when he says, you want, you want to send men ahead of you. Yeah, look how far the men went in front of you. But it's the Lord who goes before you. He is the one who has led you all this way He is the one who took care of you in Egypt. He's the one who took care of you in the wilderness. And when he says it's the Lord who goes before you, that is not simply a figure of speech. That has literally happened. right? So this is the fourth element. So Israel's faith is to be provoked not only by what the Lord says he's going to do, but also by what the Lord has done. Very similar to what Josh's point was a minute ago. And one of the things the Lord has done is had visible manifestations of his presence from the day they left Egypt, right? When they come to the, uh, the Red Sea, the Lord is there in a pillar of fire and a cloud. And he guides them through the whole wilderness all the way to Sinai. When they leave Sinai, that pillar and that cloud go before them 
and show them where they are to go to rest their camp. The Lord literally, in a physical form, has gone before them up to this point and brought them to where they are at this very place. So Moses here doesn't point to the nature of God in a theoretical or an ethereal manner in order to provoke their faith. He points to their actual experiences. These are the things you have seen the Lord do for you. Will you not trust him? Will you not do what the Lord has told you to do? And so uh, Moses is trying to motivate their trust in the Lord, given everything that's happened, and trust really is the heart of the issue. Verse 32, yet in spite of this word, this word could refer either to Moses' exhortation, his plea for the people of Israel to reconsider, or it could simply be to the whole matter, the whole matter of what the Lord has done up to this point, and yet is commanding of them, Uh, So yet in spite of this word or this matter, you did not believe or you were not trusting the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in the fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. So God has led them up to this point, yet they failed to trust in this one issue. So Moses says, yet in spite of this word or this matter, Israel's lack of trust is not total, is it? Or is it? Um, in this matter, so, so think of it this way. We might believe that God exists and we might even believe that he rewards those who seek him, as Hebrews says, is the nature of faith. We may believe that Jesus died for our sins. We may believe that God raised him from the dead and he reigns at the right hand of the Father even now. We might believe that he can do anything that he desires. But if we ask ourselves, does God desire only good things for you? If we fail to trust God at that point, the whole ball of yarn unravels, doesn't it? Or if we do not believe that everything that the Lord has commanded of us or exhorts us to is necessary and good for our faith. If we fail to trust that one point, though we have everything else, doesn't the whole ball of yarn unravel before us? And what's happening here with Israel is when it comes to the moment to actually do what the Lord has commanded them to do, the whole ball of yarn unravels because they don't trust him at this one point. Everything else is nothing if it doesn't materialize at this point. And so this issue of not trusting God is an issue over this one aspect, but it pertains to everything that has gone before and everything that comes after it. And so we could rephrase the old adage of stepping out in faith to stepping out in obedience or stepping into obedience. That is really what the issue is at heart here when Moses says, you are not trusting the Lord, which is simply a way of saying you wouldn't obey him because you didn't trust him. That's what it comes down to. And so uh, here in Deuteronomy, therefore, we see the gospel of Moses being presented quite plainly. Trust what the Lord has done, because if you don't trust what he's done, you won't trust what he will have you do going forward. And if you don't do that, everything else is undone. So trust 
is what everything else hinges on. Questions or comments through that? So, great question. I've wondered that myself. The question is, uh, when did the cloud and the fire disappear? Scripture gives us no clear answer on that. So, all we have is speculation. The way Deuteronomy leads and the way the wilderness wanderings are talked about would lead me to think the greater possibility is that it disappeared when they came to Kadesh Barnea at this point. So they uh, are brought to Kadesh by the uh, fire and cloud, it would appear. Um, but after they reject the Lord, uh, his presence no longer goes with them. He does the, doesn't lead them through the wanderings. He tells them to basically turn and leave um, as if he is not going to be with them. But again, Scripture doesn't say that. And he did continue to feed them with the manna uh, throughout the next 38 years and, and see to their provision. But it seemed as though something transformational happened at Kadesh. Um, but again, um, I can't argue if somebody else... Well, the, the way the numbers has it is that when they were traveling, at least from Sinai to Kadesh, the cloud would ascend from the tabernacle, go, and they would go to where the cloud was, and then the cloud would descend back on the tabernacle in the camp uh, when they stayed there. How long the trip took from Kadesh and uh, from Sinai to Kadesh... Should be only 11 days or so, but um, who knows how long it actually did take for sure. Um, And what happened after Kadesh is left kind of mysterious too. Yeah, when, when a big health crisis comes up, I think, I, I completely forget about the 300 other times in my life the Lord has restored my health. And that's not to say, because he's done it in the past, he's going to do it in the future. It is to say, he's always looked out for my best interest, whether this illness is the end of me or not. He has my best interest in mind. Um, and so I'm to submit to this as I would health uh, as well. So, yeah, it's very applicable. Thanks, Lee. Anything else? Okay. We'll go on. Verse 34. The Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, not one of these men, so here's the Lord, the Lord saying, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to their fathers. Except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. End of the Lord's quote. Moses continues on, though. Even with me the Lord was angry on your account and said, You also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. 
And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Just a few notes over this section. Number one, failure to trust God's intentions and his power, which is what Israel did. Uh, manifests itself in disobedience, and they reap the reward, which is death. Everyone of that generation dies. Caleb is notably accepted. Moses inserts a complaint about the people in regard to his own inability to enter the promised land uh, at this point, which is interesting because numbers points, uh, if, if we go just with numbers, Moses is not barred from the promised land for another many, many years after this. Yet, he attributes his lack of permission to go into the promised land to Israel's failure at Kadesh. Is that simply a bitter old man complaining? Or does Moses have something? What is going on here? I I do not think that Moses is slanting the text to his favor, or to the Israelites' disfavor for that matter. I think what he's simply saying is because you failed at Kadesh, there were 38 years of events that transpired that should have never happened. And one of those events is your continued complaining, which ended up resulting in my inability to enter the promised land through a series of unfortunate events. So so his inability to enter the promised land comes in some sense as a result of their rebellion here at this time. And so Moses is saying this, Even I couldn't enter the promised land. I, Moses, your leader, God's prophet, the one who speaks to him face to face, could not enter the promised land on your account. Now, we have to remember that these two are divinely inspired words. Israel's rebellion has always resulted in the death of her prophets. Mostly the untimely death of her prophets. Right? Go through the list of Israel's prophets. How many of them did it go ill with because Israel was stubborn and rebellious? Moses is the first in that train. I had problems because of you, and so it is with all of Israel's prophets. Number three, so number one, uh, the special notes here, uh, failure to trust the Lord results in death. Second, Moses... Uh, himself and all of Israel's prophets in his train run into trouble because of the stubborn heart of Israel. Number three, the great irony of Israel's children being those who will inherit the land while they themselves forfeit it. That may not seem ironic. However, in Numbers, the reason one of the reasons Israel gives for refusing to pursue uh, military engagement in Canaan is because they said they will kill us and our children will become a prey to those nations. They will prey on our children. And the Lord's response is, those very children who you said would be a prey, they're the ones who are going to do the work. So not only were you unwilling to do the work, I'm going to make your children do the work. You wanted to protect them, I am going to shove them into the very dangers that you yourself refused. And now that hits home in a 
powerful, powerful way when we think about the spiritual things we forfeit and we say it's for the children. We're giving our children experiences that they wouldn't otherwise have even though this spiritual thing is being forfeited. Or we say, I'm not going to do what I think the Lord is directing me to do because of the challenges it will make my children face. The Lord makes the children the spiritual benefactors even though the parents forfeit. And by the way, the children would have had nothing but benefit either if the parents would have actually obeyed the Lord. They would have still had all the benefit. In fact, it may have arguably been better for the children, but nevertheless, the parents forfeit altogether and the children are put in their place. Verse 41 to 46. Then you answered me, We have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, Say to them, Do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. Then you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. The big thing in this section is their continued rebellion. Verse 43, so I, uh, so I spoke to you and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command. Same word as is used in verse 26 earlier on when they refused to enter. You rebelled at the entrance and you rebelled at what was supposed to be your exit. Interesting that Moses would call their attempt to penetrate Canaan rebellion when a few verses earlier, and in real time, a matter of a day or two earlier, their refusal to do that very act was rebellion. So what became rebellion is contingent upon circumstances and what the Lord has commanded So their attempt to penetrate Canaan might look like repentance at first blush. The Lord says, all right, if you're not going to go in, I will kill you all off in the wilderness. Okay, we we change our mind. We'll, We'll go back. We will enter the land of Canaan. That looks like repentance, right? We've sinned against the Lord. We will do what he says. If that's not repentance, what is? Well, There has been a change of circumstance when the Lord said, I am not going with you. Do not fight. Turn and leave. So the Lord says, do not go up. And they say, okay, we're going to go up. That's the rebellion. The Lord has given a new command And so they are to go by that. So disobedience to the first command was disobedience, clearly. It was a rejection of everything that had been letting up to. And again, remember, the issue is trust. Trust is not cold. It's not forced. It's not begrudged. It's not done under duress. Everything about their attempt to go into Canaan here is. 
And remember, too, that some prophetic words are given as warnings and contingent, right? So Jonah, 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. never happens because the people repent. And so you'd think repentance would lead to something different. But no, because the second command has already been issued in verse 40, uh, which is, But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. So we're not going to enter, the Lord says, then turn and go around. No. We're going to fight. Don't fight. And they went up and they fought. So they actually transgressed two more commands even after the Lord told them not to do it here as well. The result is that they fight and they have a devastating defeat and a demoralizing defeat. And the whole reason is this one issue. The presence of the Lord is no longer there. Whereas earlier, Moses urges, the Lord is with you. Do this thing. At this point, it is, the Lord is no longer with you. Don't do it. And as it turns out, when the Lord is with them, they are not only saved from the Egyptians, they are not only preserved through a wilderness that should have, by all means, killed at least a number of the people along the way, but they were provided for and protected. Uh, The presence of the Lord from Egypt till Kadesh is contrasted with the lack of the presence of the Lord here Uh, once they go up to fight, and you can see how the results uh, compare equally. Success, where you wouldn't expect it early on when the Lord is there, and then devastating defeat when the Lord is not there. This, I think, is one of the reasons it is so significant that Jesus ends the Great Commission in Matthew 28 as he does. And behold, I am with you. Until the end of the age. It's the last thing he says. After he tells his people to go, he reminds them, I am with you until the end of the age. So the reason we are to bear witness, whether it is successful or not, or whether we think it will bear fruit or not, is because the Lord is with us, and the result is left entirely in his hands, and he has our good in mind as he commands us to do it. We bring all of those ideas together, and uh, just as Moses did here in Deuteronomy, and we find the same direction, um, the application from Deuteronomy to the present is very close at hand uh, when we spend a little bit of time in Deuteronomy. I'll end with John 15:5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we are to always keep Matthew 28 in mind and learn what we can here in Deuteronomy. Thoughts or questions before we close shop today? Very well. God willing, we'll see you next week.